Romans chapter 12 is where we are taking our text tonight. Romans chapter 12, and we'll be reading verses 1 and 2. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Praise God. Amen. Apostle Paul writes to the church at Rome and he, he says to them, I beseech you or I beg you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Now, before we go any further, I just want to throw this in tonight. I've said it before, but it always bears repeating. The Bible commands us to become acceptable to God, not to accept Him. This whole philosophy of accepting Christ is so foreign to the scriptures. Nowhere are we told to accept him. He has to be willing to accept us. And that happens as we present our bodies a living sacrifice. Holy, acceptable unto God. And he says, this is just your reasonable service. This is just, in other words, this is just logical that you do this. Verse 2, he says, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I don't have time to go into this. I've dealt with this in a podcast uh, several weeks ago, but this is not three separate wills of God. There's not a good will, an acceptable will, and a perfect will. God's not schizophrenic. He doesn't have multiple personalities. This is certainly not talking about the will of each member of the Trinity. God's will is good, and His will is acceptable, and His will is perfect. Praise God. And the only way that we can prove that is if we will refuse to be conformed, but instead be transformed. And that is the title of this lesson for which we are now on part three. It's titled simply Transformed, Not Conformed. Transformed, Not Conformed. And this is a part of our ongoing series on understanding separation in preparation for my next book. That I've got to be honest with you, saints, and I know you're standing, but I don't know when I have ever felt so compelled. As what I am feeling 
of late. If there is a subject that desperately needs to be addressed, it's this one. The apostolic movement is, is under attack from within. From within. As certain elements want to try to make us more acceptable to the world. They want us to be more relatable or relative. And so they feel like our holiness standards are outdated. And can I tell you, in one sense, they are. Um, they're outdated. They're not up to modern times. And furthermore, they will always be outdated. And they always have been outdated because we're not following the fads and fashions of this world. So we're never up to date with what the world has going on. We are following a different culture altogether. This is something I have to stress when I go to Africa because we start teaching certain principles of holiness and that, well, but, but our culture says, but our, I said, look, American culture disagrees with the Bible too. Especially today. American culture is anti-biblical. We need to adopt kingdom culture. And that's universal. That's worldwide. I don't care what country you live in. Your geographic location is irrelevant to the subject. You're part of a worldwide kingdom. And the culture of the kingdom is the same here as it is in Canada, as it is in Mexico, as it is in Zimbabwe, as it is in Kenya, as it is in Russia, as it is in Poland. The kingdom culture applies to everybody everywhere. And nobody is exempt and nobody's national culture or ethnic culture takes precedent over kingdom culture. Well, hallelujah. So we're going to talk about transformed, not conformed tonight. And like I said, I hope that I can finish this lesson tonight. We want to go to the Lord in prayer. I want you to ask that God would help me, give me strength, anoint me tonight. I want to be a help to you. But also as we pray, I do want to ask the church to pray for Brother Carter. Uh, he texted me earlier today. He is sick and not here tonight. And we do want to pray for him, that God would touch him. He has been so faithful from the time that he came in. Uh, he's just been faithful. And I know his heart is here right now. And we want to pray for him and pray that God would touch him and raise him up. So let's pray. Let's pray for God's anointing upon the remainder of the service, but also pray for our brother. That God would bring healing to his body right now. Lord Jesus.
Lord, in the name of Jesus, let healing virtue flow. God, from this house to his house. Do the work, Lord. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. Praise God. God bless you. You may be seated. Um, this is my first time in a long time, not just to preach and teach, but to do it without sitting in a chair. So we're going to see how things go tonight, and if I start getting really exhausted, I'll have to bring the chair up then. Billy Goff was kind enough to bring it to me, but I'm going to give it a try and show you I'm not quite the old man some of you think I am. I'm not ready for retirement yet. Don't put me out to pasture just yet. Yes, sir. Well, praise God. I got a few good years left in me. Uh, a few, a few. Not, not as many as I used to have, but a few. Praise God. Amen. Um, so let me do a review because it has been many weeks since I last taught. So let me do a review. I started to say brief, but I don't know if it will be brief or not. But we're going to try to, to do a review here tonight. Um, in the opening lesson, I addressed the fact that the Apostle Paul described in the book of Romans a battle that goes on between the flesh and the spirit. You find this in the seventh chapter of his letter to Rome. And he lets us know that this war rages constantly. That there is, in fact, a law within our members that causes us to tend toward sin. And we have to learn how to overcome that law. we got to learn how to deal with that law. Uh, he told us the reason we've got to learn to deal with it is because giving in to the flesh is ultimately going to end in death. That's what the Bible says. The soul that sinneth, it shall some of you knew the answer some of you didn't you need to know that answer the soul that sinneth it shall there we go you got it 100% that time well I mean those that answered got it 100% um, the soul that sinneth it shall die the wages of sin is death absolutely and so we know that that's where it's going to lead now it may not take you to an immediate death by way of the grave, but it leads to a spiritual death, a separation from God. We talked about in the very first lesson of this series that, that holiness is God's primary characteristic. It is the premier factor that describes Him. And so we have to be holy. And so the Apostle Paul commanded that we be not conformed to this world. The word conformed, I pointed out to you, is a compound Greek word um, that really means a, a resemblance to the external fashion. That's what conformity is. It is resembling the external fashion. And Paul said that we as the church should not do that. We should not be conformed to this world. We don't need to try to follow the fashions of this world. We don't need to try to look like this world or act like this world or respond like this world. 
I don't look to the world to decide what, what kind of clothes I'm going to wear. I don't look to the world to decide how I'm going to cut my hair or how I'm going to style it. I'm not interested in the patterns that the world sets. I don't want to be conformed to this world. But he didn't just say what not to do. He said, don't be conformed, but do be transformed. And the word transformed, as I pointed out to you, is literally uh, the word from which we get our English word metamorphosis. And we talked about what a metamorphosis is. It's that process that, that changes that aquatic tadpole into an air-breathing frog. Tadpole, uh, once he goes through metamorphosis, then the frog cannot go back and live. He can live around the water. He can spend a little bit of time under the water, but he can't live there. And the tadpole is not going to survive on dry land. Once there is a transformation, once there is a metamorphosis, and this is the problem with so many in the church. I was talking to a pastor about this very thing just the other day. So many, especially in the apostolic church, learn how to conform not to the world but to the church. They learn how to look like the church and act like the church, but they've never been transformed. It's not enough to look this way on the outside. There's got to be an internal transformation that takes place. Something's got to happen where you love to live this way. It's not a drudgery to look godly and to live holy and to be separate. It's not something I dread. It's not something I despise. I love to live this way because I've been transformed. This is my habitat now. Well, hallelujah. This is my home now. The church is where I live. In Him I live and move and have my being. Because there's been a transformation. There's been a metamorphosis. The man I used to be no longer exists. He died. And a new man is risen to take his place. Praise God. So we, we talked about all that in the first lesson, or the first part of this lesson. And then we started talking about the problems that we encounter. And the fact that there are really three principal forces that oppose us as Christians. I don't know if you remember what those three forces are. They are the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, really, I, I should really reorder those if you are concerned about um, priority and, and um, what, what has the greatest impact. Because if we're going to start with what has the greatest impact and the greatest potential to bring us failure, number one would be the flesh, yes. not the devil. 
and not the world. It's our flesh. We can rebuke the devil. If, if we'll submit ourselves to God and resist the devil, the Bible says he'll flee from us. Dealing with the devil's not a problem. I didn't get very many amens, but that's the truth. There are people who live in absolute fear of the devil. They are just so afraid of the devil. We shouldn't be. We should not be afraid of him. We have authority over him. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. We've got the power to cast out devils. But I can't cast out flesh. Flesh has to be crucified. And that's your job, not mine. I can't crucify it for you. And so really the order of impact or the greatest dangers that we face, it would come in this order. Number one, the flesh. Number two, the world. Because of its allure to us. Because it appeals to the flesh. That's why the world is appealing. Because our flesh wants it. It gratifies the flesh. It makes the flesh feel good. So it's the flesh and then the world and then the devil. But all of them work in consort. They work together. They come together. A three-fold cord, the Bible says, is not easily broken. And these three folds come together in an attempt to hinder you from living a spiritual and victorious life. The flesh is attracted to the world. The world is controlled by the power of the devil. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Paul calls uh, the devil the God of this world. And so this world is controlled by the devil. He is the prince and power of the air. This world is controlled by the devil. And the world appeals to our flesh. And our flesh is the hardest thing to overcome. And so the secret to victory is not rebuking the devil. And it's really not even overcoming the world. The secret to victory is crucifying the flesh. Because if you'll crucify the flesh... You will overcome the world and you'll be able to rebuke the devil. That's where the key is. And that's where the transformation has to take place. Is the crucifying of our carnal nature. We die to sin. And then sin has no attraction to those who are dead. Doesn't appeal to you. It does not appeal to you. I said it before, I say it again, and I'm still in the review, but, but let me just say this again, that if there is some area of your life with which you are struggling, there is some weakness that you know you have, let me tell you, that part of your flesh 
is not yet dead. And the fact that you have this weakness is not an excuse. That's what the world wants us to believe. Well, I'm sorry, but I got a weakness in this area. Okay, well, you need to be sorry. You need to be sorry enough to crucify your flesh. Not excuse it. All right, so we talked about that. We, we talked about um, the, the elements of this world. First uh, John 2.16, the world is defined of three things. And, and those three things uh, really become the source of evil in this world. And it is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now, again, I really believe, Brother Goff, the biggest danger for apostolics is the pride of life. Ah, that's just me. I can't prove it, but that's me. That's one of those things that just doesn't get dealt with a whole lot. And I'm telling you, you know, it used to be, it used to be when, when our forefathers, our ancestors were under the brush arbor and they had nothing. There wasn't a whole lot to be proud of. But God's blessed the apostolic movement. We live in the nicest homes and drive the nicest cars and have the finest clothes. And now we become proud. And we're too proud to say we're sorry. We're too proud to admit we're wrong. We're too proud to submit to authority. It all boils down to pride. And can I tell you something that may blow your mind? And I, This is not in my notes. I don't have time to go into it. I've said it before, but if you haven't heard me say it, this may come as a real shock to you. But when God explained why he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, he didn't start with the sin of homosexuality. That was not first on his list. It was there. And that's what everybody focuses on. And I hear people say, if God lets, this, lets America get much worse than what it is today, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, let me tell you, he's not going to have to apologize because of the LGBTQ, RST, UV, WXYZ, whatever. But you want to know what's worse? Our pride is just as bad as Sodom's, if not worse. Now, I'm also going to tell you this, and this may blow your mind, and there may be a day this may be illegal for me to say in America, but I'll say it anyhow. Can I tell you that homosexuality is the ultimate result of pride? They talk about gay pride. Let me tell you, that's the, only, that's the only thing that causes a person to be homosexual is pride. Here's the deal. They want, they want a partner that is as much like themselves as they can get. So a man wants another man and a woman wants another woman. That 
my friend, is pride. In fact, I'm going to tell you while I'm on the subject of pride, that pride really is the spirit of Lucifer himself. It's what caused him to become the devil. When there was no devil to drag him down, pride drug him down. And can I tell you, I've seen pride drag good saints down and turn them into devils. I've seen pride drag good preachers down and turn them into devils. Is anybody hearing me tonight? I know I haven't gotten into the new part of the lesson, but I'm preaching tonight. I'm telling you, if there is a danger that is in this world today, it is pride. May God help us to crucify every ounce of pride that is in us. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Don't ever forget God resisteth the proud. That that word means that he he literally pushes them away. You ever try to give somebody a hug and they just push you away? That's the idea behind this word resist. God resists the proud. That you got your hands raised saying, I love you, Jesus. And he said, "Uh -uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. Don't come near me with that pride of yours. I told this before, but I heard some years ago about a preacher that got to preaching about how, how corrupt our flesh is and how no good we are as individuals. And, and I mean, he was just, he was really railing on it. And when he got through, this lady walked up to him and said, Preacher, I want you to know you made me feel about that tall. He said, Sister, that's still too big. That's still too big. I'm telling you, no flesh ought to glory in God's presence. Who do we think we are? We are nothing more than glorified dust. God scooped us together with his own hands and breathed into our nostrils the breath of life. And if God takes that breath away, we turn right back into dust. I don't care how many billions you acquire. I don't care what kind of car you drive or what kind of home you live in. I don't care how expensive your shoes or your purse or your dress or your suit. I don't care. When God takes that breath of life away, you turn into dust again. Because that's all you are without the breath of life. Oh, I feel the Holy Ghost. It's all we are. God takes that little piece of deity out of us. That part of us that is his image. When that's gone, we just go right back to the dust. So whatever you are, whatever you become, you better thank God that he gave you the breath. Got a good job, making good money? Thank God. He's given you the breath to keep showing up. Got a nice car? Thank God he's given you the breath to be able to drive it. And don't ever forget where these things come from. And, And maybe you don't have all the nice things. 
And I've seen poor people become awfully proud people. Sometimes they become proud of their poverty. Well, I don't live like you. I'm not highfalutin like you. May God help us to realize whatever our station in life, we're there by the grace of God. All right, I, if I'm going to get done with this lesson, i got to move on. But Anyhow, um, you want to go back to these six things that the Lord hate? Yea, seven are abomination unto him. Number one. <laughs> Number one. Seven things God hates more than anything. Now, the Roman Catholic Church sometime back put together the seven deadly sins. That's not God's list. That's their list. God has the seven deadly sins. It's found in the book of Proverbs. And number one on God's list is a proud look. That's number one. That's above everything else. That's the number one abomination. That's what he said. These six things doth the Lord hate. Seven are an abomination unto him. God despises them. God, it makes God sick to his stomach. That's what abomination means. Nothing makes God more nauseated than human pride. Oh, Jesus, I'm in deep tonight. All right, I was trying to talk about the threefold uh, source of evil, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. We, we pointed out to you that Satan used this when he tempted Eve. Uh, we went through and showed you he used this when he tempted Christ in the wilderness. He showed you those verses from the creation of man to the, to, to the coming of the Savior to this present time. The methods the enemy uses have not changed. And that's why the apostle said we're not ignorant of his devices because these are the only devices he has. This is it. And so it's incumbent on us to resist the enemy, to reject what the world has, and to crucify our flesh so we can accomplish the first. Now, we can now move into tonight's lesson, and I've got about 30 minutes to do it, so I've got some time to cover some new ground tonight. Let's see how far we can get. Amen. It is important to us that we maintain a clear line of distinction between ourselves and the world at all times. I'm telling you, it's a sad, sad day when people who claim to be Christians look exactly like the people walking out of the strip clubs. They look exactly like the people walking out of the nightclubs and the ballrooms. You can't tell the difference. It's a sad day. And it's slipping into the apostolic church. Not here. We're going to make sure it doesn't happen around here. As long as I have breath, 
As long as I've got my right mind about me, as long as I remain pastor here, we're going to make sure there will always be a distinction between us and the world. I'm not interested, I said it before I say it again, I'm not interested in following the fads and fashions of this world. And you should not be either. There can never be fellowship between light and darkness. The two simply are not compatible in any way. 2 Corinthians 6.14, read for me. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers? For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? Yeah, and the next verse would say, And what communion hath Christ with Belial? Or the temple of God with infidels? This, this whole idea, now you understand these, these are rhetorical questions. You understand that terminology? What it means is the answer is so clear you don't have to have an answer. It's like saying, is the Pope Catholic? I don't have to answer that question. You know the answer, right? Everybody knows the answer. I guess, well, I, I've wondered sometimes some of the things that he said, but um, anyhow. Another story for another day. Um, does the sun come up in the morning? You know, these are rhetorical questions. That The answer is so obvious that no response is needed. And that's what Paul is employing in writing here when he says, What fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? There's an unstated, obvious answer. What is that answer? None. None. What fellowship do they have? None. What communion does light have with darkness? None. That ought to be obvious to us. Nobody should have to say that to us. Let me tell you. And this this is this is I mean this is not profound. But the fact of the matter is, we turn every light off in this building right now. It's going to be pitch black in here. But all we have to do is turn on one light. And darkness does not fellowship with that light. Now, depending on the amount of light, there may still be darkness in other areas of the room. But around the light, there's a clear line of demarcation. Right? There's no blending here. There's light and there's dark. And that's the way it's supposed to be in our walk with God. Not that we are blending in. But there is a clear line of distinction. We are the light of the world. The world is in darkness. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 17 and 18. This is just a few verses later than what we just read. Verses 17 and 18. Wherefore come out from among them. Wherefore come ye out from among them. And be ye separate. And be ye Separate. Separate. Saith the Lord. Saith the Lord. 
And touch not, and the, touch unclean not the unclean thing, thing. And I will receive and you. And I will receive you. And I will be a father, will be unto, a father you, unto you. And you shall be my sons and, and be daughters. And you sons and daughters. Saith the Lord Almighty. Listen to me. Listen to me. According to this passage of Scripture, not everybody that says they are a child of God is a true child of God. When you're handling the unclean things of this world, when you are trying to blend in with this world, when you're trying to look like this world and act like this world and think like this world, you've got no right to claim God as your father. Well, let me just tell you, there's something about genetics and God designed it this way. Every one of us either look like our father or our mother or a blending of the two. Now, my pastor used to say, uh, he used to tell us, now you young men, you start looking at a woman, a young lady, he said, look at her mama. Because when that girl gets to be mama's age, she's going to look like mama. And you young ladies, when you're looking at a man, Look at his daddy. Because when he gets to be daddy's age, he's going to look like daddy. Now, that's what he used to tell us. I know there are exceptions because some men end up looking like their mama and some girls end up looking like their daddy. And, and I don't mean that in a transgender sense. I mean their facial features. Those things happen. But here's my point. You're going to look like one or the other. Well, if we are the bride of Christ, we are the mama. So I'm going to tell you, either way you go, you need to, you need to either look like mama or look like daddy. And you know what mama's doing? Mama's looking like daddy. In fact, something else they used to tell me is the longer you live together, the more the two of you look alike. My poor wife. Y'all pray for her. She's beautiful, and if any of this ever rubs off on her, she's in trouble. But she's made it 43 years so far without any of that, so I think she can make it the rest of the journey. Well, hallelujah. But you can't look like some stranger. Well, how, 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 how blunt do I get here? I mean, that baby's born and he, he looks like the mailman. There might be a problem. And somebody comes in and says, I'm a child of God. But they look like the world. There's a problem. There's something wrong with the DNA. There's something that's not right with the genetics here. You can't look like the enemy and be a child of God. Come on, somebody. I'm telling you, when you become the child of God, he said, I'll be your father. You'll be my sons and daughters. If you'll come out and be separate and don't touch what's unclean, then you can call me father. Right. 
I'm, I'm not the first one to say this. Jesus looked at the Pharisees. They said, we have Abraham to be our father. He said, if you, if you were Abraham's children, you'd act like Abraham. I'd see a resemblance between you and Abraham. I don't see a resemblance between you and Abraham. He said, but I'll tell you what I do see. Now, this is the Riggin revised version, but this is what he said. He said, I do see a resemblance between you and the devil. That's what he said in so many words. He said, you are of your father, the devil. He was a liar from the beginning. He's a liar and he's the father of all lies. You know, he's telling those Pharisees, Abraham's not your daddy. Satan's your daddy. I think we need some more preaching these days that just tells the world, don't call God your dad when you're trying to look like the devil. Don't walk in here looking like Anton LaVey. Some of you don't even know who he is. He was the founder of the Church of Satan in America. Don't, don't walk in here trying to look like Anton LaVey and, and then try to tell me you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Do looks matter? You better believe they matter. Genetics just have a way of passing on traits and characteristics. Some of you, some of you have seen the pictures that I've shared. My oldest grandson, when I was about 16 or 17, I've got pictures of me and pictures of him at that age, and and the 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 likeness is uncanny. And he's just my grandson. But the genetics are strong. You can't deny he's my grandson because he looks like me. There's no denying that God is your father if there's something about you that resembles him. But if there's no resemblance, you better go back and check your family tree. Is anybody hearing me tonight? The church needs a fresh revelation of the fact that the promise of being received by God and becoming His sons and daughters is conditional upon complete separation from the world. God's plan for the church is to take them out of the world and remove the world from them. In fact, the very Greek word that's translated church, ecclesia. Ecclesia means called out ones. That's what the church is. Those who have been called out. This is how it all began. God's first dealings with Abraham. What did he do? He called him out. Leave that pagan city. Leave your heathen family. Come out from among them. Well, this is why I don't understand why churches are looking to the world to pattern their services. 
I, I don't understand why do we want to be like the charismatics? Why do we want to be like somebody else? I can't figure it out. We're not supposed to be like them. God condemned among the Jews when they would try to worship Jehovah after the ways of the heathen. Don't learn the ways of the heathen, he said. Don't try to worship me the way they worship their false gods. Your worship to me is to be different. Separation from the world brings victory. It brings power. It brings the joy of the Lord. We talked about this in our very first lesson. That it's when those angels began to cry, holy, holy, holy. That's when things started to move. And the glory of God filled the temple. When they were proclaiming God's holiness. That's what started bringing about the power of God. And listen, separation from the world is still what's going to bring power to the church of the living God. The Christian that maintains full separation from the world has a genuine testimony that will have an effect upon everybody who knows him. If you really separate from the world. Some people are afraid for the world to know they're making a separation. You shouldn't be. That's what's going to draw them to Christ. You trying to blend in, trying to hide, trying to be an undercover Christian is never going to win anybody. Now I'm not talking about walking up and slapping them in the face with a bunch of standards. But I am telling you, we cannot try to be covert Christians. We cannot be hidden apostolics. This world needs to see the difference. They need to recognize the difference. It's not something we have to go and, and, and scream at them about. We live a different life. We reflect a different set of values. We talk differently. We act differently. We dress differently. Everything about us is different from this world. Listen, there's a verse I want you to think about here. 2 Timothy 3 and 5. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. You ever notice this connection here? Having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof now this this word thereof points back to the word godliness having a form of godliness but denying the power that comes from godliness that's why they only have a form It's just a form of godliness. You know, you get ready to build a building, one of the first things you got to do is set the forms. 
But once there's something in those forms, you pour the concrete and it sets, what happens to the forms? You've got to get rid of them. Forms are only valuable when they're empty or being filled. But once there's substance there, you don't need a form anymore. And that's the way a lot of people are with their godliness. It's empty. Or it's fluid. But it's not settled. And set. And secure. And that's where the power of godliness comes in. I believe this so strongly, and I, I keep looking at my clock because I know I'm not going to finish this lesson tonight. Uh, uh, it's not going to happen, so I need to quit worrying about it. To quote a preacher from Sunday night, some people just need to keep their mouth closed. <laughs> Help us, Jesus. There's a time to speak and a time to keep silent. Oh, God, I get distracted. And I got to go back and find where I was in my notes. Do what? Yeah, a form of godliness. And, and, and it's got to be settled. It's got to be set. It's got to be secure. It's got to be firm. Hallelujah. That's what's got to happen. Now, I, I, I know what I, I started to tell you that many, many years ago in my home church, we had a missionary come through and, you know, back under the old system that we were under, um, they would send missionaries overseas for a period of three years, four years. Then they'd bring them back home and they'd spend two or three years traveling around the country trying to raise enough money to go back for another couple of years and, and have to leave the work many times in the hands of people who are either totally unexperienced or did not believe what they believed. And the whole work would be destroyed and they'd have to start over when they got back. It was the worst system I've ever seen and they're still employing it. They are, not us. They are. Um, but, but during that time there was a missionary that came through my home church. And I've talked to you about my home church and the power of God that would move in that place. The miracles we saw. The things that God did. And this missionary stood in awe as he watched that service. And after the service, he went to eat with my pastor and he said, this is unlike any church I've been to anywhere in North America. I've never seen anything like this. He said, what is the difference? Why is this church different than the others? My pastor said, you really want to know? He said, yes, I want to know. Our pastor said, it's because we believe and teach and practice holiness. There's power in holiness. There's power in being separate from the world. They had a long talk that night, and that missionary made some changes in his life. Became a dear friend to my pastor. Came through frequently. What an impact it had on him. I'm telling you, church, 
If we want to see the things that God has promised this church that we're going to see, it's not going to come through compromise. It's not going to come through letting down. It's not going to come through giving up or backing up or shutting up. It's going to come through standing firm for the principles of righteousness, godliness, holiness, separation. That's what's going to bring the power. That's what's going to bring revival. And not just the proclamation of it from the pulpit. But the practice of it in the pew. Not enough for the preacher to preach it. The saints have to embrace it. Well, it is quite frankly dishonest to claim to be living for God while at the same time living to please our carnal flesh. We have to decide whether we're going to serve ourselves or serve our Creator. And any time that there is a divided allegiance, and someone tries to live for God and live for the world at the same time, I'm telling you that individual ends up defeated, unhappy, miserable, because they're trying to go two directions at the same time. You can't have one foot in the church and one foot in the world. It's an all or nothing proposition. You've got to be sold out to live for God. This is where I cast my lot. This is how I make up my mind to live. I'm not going any other direction. I'm not looking any other way. This is the way I'm going to live. 100% wholeheartedly sold out to a life of separation unto God. And let, let, me, let, me just, let me just throw this out to us because we're, we're all home folks tonight. So I can, I can be a little bit more uh, open. And I know this goes out over the internet, but so be it. I'm going to tell you something, church. My concerns. I said when I started this lesson that I've never felt so driven to write as I have these last few weeks to write on this subject in particular because I'm seeing such a move. Even among some groups that call themselves conservative, I'm watching them abandon principles that we've always embraced. But listen to me, that's the reason why we've had a policy around here. It's not because I'm trying to be controlling. It's not because I'm trying to be micromanaging. But, but we've had a policy around here. I know there's a lot of meetings that go on. But if I don't announce it, or I don't put it on the bulletin board, probably best you don't go. Because one of two things is going on. Either there's something there at that meeting that I feel like would be detrimental to you spiritually. Or we simply didn't get invited. And if we didn't get invited, they don't want us there. So why show up? Does that make sense? 
Now, maybe they didn't invite us because they don't know about us. Maybe that's all there was to it. I don't know. But we still didn't get invited. And if you get invited and they don't invite your pastor, then there's a real problem. Really makes me wonder what they're trying to accomplish. If they want you there but not me. You see the smile on my face now. I'm not being ugly and mean. Well, I'm being, I can't help being ugly. That was the way I was born. But I'm not being mean. That's why. It's not because I want to micromanage your lives. It's not because I want to be controlling. I'm trying to watch out for you. There are ravening wolves out there that are even among the conservative movement. They're out there. They're out there. And they want to devour as much as they can devour. And they can plant a little seed. You understand that preaching plants seeds in the womb of the church. And you get somebody that's got one of these crazy ideas. And I'm hearing it and hearing it. I just the other day listened to a little clip. Well-known conference preacher preaching prosperity doctrine. Now some of you don't even know what that is. Thank God you don't. I've battled it till I'm sick of it in Africa of all places. Prosperity doctrine is that God wants you prosperous. God wants you rich. Listen, it's making its moves right now through the apostolic conservative ranks. You hear me? Right now, among conservative apostolics, it's making its rounds. This damnable doctrine, this heresy from hell that God wants you wealthy. No, God wants you saved. And how hardly can a rich man enter into heaven. He didn't say they can't. But he said they're going to have a difficult time getting there. I'm telling you God hadn't changed his mind about it. God is not trying to make us prosperous. He's trying to make us righteous. Oh help me Jesus. For some people staying broke and staying poor is what keeps you staying on your knees. And that's why God doesn't want you prosperous. And he's up there telling his congregation that if you're not prospering, there's something wrong with you. May God forgive him for lying to those people. I said it, and they can send it to him for all I care. As it's the truth. I'm seeing it and seeing it and seeing it, and it will destroy you. You cannot serve God and mammon. Do you even know what mammon is? That's not just some false god. It is the god of money. That's what mammon is. Jesus said you can't serve God and serve money at the same time. 
Either you're going to love one and hate the other or you're going to cling to one and, and despise the other. That's what Jesus said. You can't, you can't love them both. The Apostle Paul said the love of money is the root of all evil. You hear me? When they start preaching prosperity gospel to their people, I'm telling you, they're introducing evil into their congregation. Not happening around here. How in the world did I get off on that? I think I was talking about having a divided allegiance. You don't have a singular commitment. I'm going to live for God. Everything else is ancillary. Everything else is additional. You're probably not going to make it if you don't just make up your mind. I'm going to live for God. In good times, in bad times, in rich times, in poor times, in sick times, in healthy times, I'm going to live for God. When my family loves me, when my family hates me, I'm going to live for God. When nobody understands me, I'm going to live for God. Second Timothy 2 and 4. Let me see if I can at least make it a little ways here. Second Timothy 2 and 4. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who have chosen him to be a soldier. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life. You can't go to war and be worried about the stock market worried about politics you're going to go to war you better have war on the mind or you're going to die on the battlefield a divided life cannot continue long because you're either going to dedicate your life to God or you're going to turn your back on him and be turned to the beggarly elements of this world. A person that tries to straddle the fence between God and the world will not survive spiritually. You just can't go both directions at the same time. Now here's that verse that I was quoting a while ago. I'd forgotten it was even in my notes. Uh, read it, Matthew 6 and 24. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve you God cannot and mammon. You serve God and mammon. But it's true, you can't serve two masters of anything. Even if it's not money, whatever else it may be, you can't serve two masters. Popularity becomes a master.
Appearance can become a master. Oh, Galatians 4 and 3, I'm going to do two more verses and then we're going to stop. Galatians 4 and 3. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. And then Galatians 4 and 9. But now, after that ye have known God, or rather known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements, whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage? How is it that you return to those beggarly elements? God set you free from this world of sin. Why would you want to go back? Why? Why? The cry of the Israelites for 40 years was we had it better in Egypt. Oh, how they were deceived. They forgot about their hard taskmasters. They forgot about everything that went on there and how much they hated it and how much they wanted to be set free. Why would you want to go back to Egypt? There's nothing in Egypt that will be of any benefit to you. I read a story one time, and I close with this. Musicians can play softly. I read about a man many, many years ago, the Old West. He was a terrible drunkard. But he prayed through and was delivered from alcohol. I say he was delivered, he quit. But he kept fighting this terrible desire. He had this habit. When he'd ride in from the ranch into town, there was one spot that he'd always tied his horse to. One particular hitching post was just, that was his place. And it was right in front of the saloon. He'd done it for years. He'd tied it there for years. Finally, he struggled and he struggled and he struggled and he, he finally went to his pastor and he said, Pastor, I don't know what to do. He said, I really, I don't want to return to that life of alcohol, but every time I tie my horse up to that hitching post in front of the saloon, I, I have this overwhelming desire to go inside and get just one more drink. Pastor offered him very simple advice. He said, let me tell you what you need to do. You need to find a new hitching post. And as soon as he took that advice and started tying his horse at the other end of the street, he soon found that old pull wasn't near as strong as he thought it was. Can I tell you, this is the problem with too many Christians. They're still tying their horse way too close to the things that they used to love.
If you're going to be successful in your walk with God, you're going to have to find a new hitching post. You're going to have to find a new hitching post. Let's stand tonight. Let's lift our hands. Let's lift our voices. Let's talk to him right where we're at right now. Let's just talk to him, everybody.